If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The end of slavery is generally hailed as a moment of triumph in our history. But according to the historian Professor Chris Manjapra, if we examine emancipations more closely, a much more complex story emerges. Chris's new book, Black Ghost of Empire, argues that the ways in which slavery ended actually helped to perpetuate systems of oppression rather than disrupt them. I spoke to him to find out more. In Black Ghost of Empire, you say that, quote, the history of slavery and emancipation is not a story of endings, but unendings. What exactly do you mean by that? Yes, so the book really looks at um, the history of emancipations over about 100 years and categorizes them into six different kinds. But there is this through line that I track, a kind of a red thread that connects all of these different locations and histories together. And that through line is that when you look at closely, we see that emancipations actually conspired to perpetuate uh, the racial caste system after the end of slavery, as opposed to disrupting it. Um, Emancipations actually provided failed pathways to justice, but that the design of those pathways was intended. So there's a kind of a design to how things happened that um, becomes very interesting, especially when you study it in comparative perspective. As you say, you are comparing different case studies here. So you look at America, you look at Haiti, Spanish Americas, Britain, and also Africa. What differences did you find by looking at these different cases? And maybe what similarities did you also see? I think I might begin answering that question by first taking a big step back and um, and noting that, uh, you know, the reason why even asking this question seems so important and urgent is because um, for 600 years, uh, we know that Black communities have um, struggled against the racial caste system um, and against uh, various forms of oppression for a long period of that time. That was specifically the struggle against slavery. And then as slavery began to end. We often think of the ending as a once and done kind of, you know, moment. But in fact, there was this long period, like I mentioned, of a hundred years. Once that began to happen, sometime at the end of the 1700s, we also see that Black people are already 
struggling and arguing uh, for reparations. And, you know, the, the, the way that Black communities really now for 200 years and going all the way up to today have been uh, asking for reparations, organizing for reparations, you know, that in some ways is the impetus, was the impetus for me to even ask the qu- kind of questions that I'm asking in this book. So it's, you know, it's really putting the, the, the unfinished and failed history of emancipations in the context of today's reparation struggles um, that I was interested in. And then to to go to the question you just posed around these uh, different kinds of emancipation. So, like I mentioned, there we can categorize them into six different types. Um, just by before we even getting into what those six are, um, I can you know just note that the book looks at, for example things taking place in Philadelphia and in Haiti, in London, in Jamaica, in Mississippi, in Sierra Leone, even in India. And in fact, these different kinds of emancipation often spoke to each other. They referenced each other in interesting ways, even as they had different characteristics. And it would be great to talk about those case studies of different emancipations in a bit more depth. Can you run us through a few of them? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, it may may come as a surprise to some of our listeners uh, that the very first emancipations uh, were actually located in the American North. So uh, in the area of, you know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New York, this region of of the United States. And um, 1780 in Philadelphia really becomes a kind of germination moment, you know, in which a particular kind of emancipation, a particular template arises. And this is called the gradual emancipation model. Um, Gradual emancipations, just to be really brief, uh, were uh, a process whereby the the people who were living in slavery, who are adults and living in slavery, would continue as enslaved people for the rest of their lives. The people who were being born, so the children born into slavery, they could then look forward to freedom. But that freedom would come after a long period of time, after potentially 18 to 25 years. And so there, that was the, the basic model for the gradual emancipations. And you already notice here, there is this um, idea that freedom would come gradually, you know, over the course of decades, but only for those who are newly born. Then if we, you know, fast forward in time and we come to the period of 1807, this is when the slave trade was abolished. Of course, the British Empire playing a central role um, in that uh, in, in that development. We see what I call the sea emancipations. And these were emancipations that, that really were taking place at sea as uh, uh, British patrollers were capturing slave vessels and were taking them to an emancipation colony in Sierra Leone, which was just... Uh, coming online as a British um, as a, as a British holding um, in Western Africa, and what's interesting here is we see the template being m- modified. So now, uh, if you were being held in the belly of a slave ship, you were brought uh, before a court. And you were then made free through a legal process. But this freedom that you received required you to still serve 14 years in a quote-unquote apprenticeship. And that apprenticeship was basically, you know, slavery by another name. So we see that that the, the apprenticeship or the indentureship system as a way of, like, I, like I've been saying before, prolonging the racial caste system even after the official end of slavery as an institution. 
When we go forward again in time, we come to the 1830s, a very, very important moment globally for uh, the history of emancipations, because it's in this moment that Britain, the British Empire, which by this time was identifying itself worldwide as the anti-slavery empire, um, it designed a new kind of emancipation with new mechanisms and devices. And we call this the compensated emancipation model. What was distinctive here, there was a, a, the, certainly there was the dimension of having an apprenticeship period. So enslaved people would not be made directly free. They had to serve for, it was initially 12 years and it was shortened to eight years. And eventually it was made to be four years. So that happened. But in addition to that, and this is the key point, the slave owners received financial compensation. Um, and there was a very sophisticated lo logistical and administrative project to compensate more than 44,000 slave owners across the British Empire for the price the head price of the enslaved people that they kept on their plantations. That model of compensating slave owners with money for the loss of the quote-unquote slave property, that became a gold standard internationally. That was then used in France and in the Netherlands and even in Denmark as a model for how empires in the 19th century would emancipate their um, enslaved populations. And then the final two emancipations that uh, the book uh, surveys, you know, we come to uh, a very um, memorable, canonical, um, hugely important moment in uh, American history, the Civil War. And I call this the war emancipation model. Um, and what was key here is that whereby in all the other emancipations, the government was playing this very careful game of making sure that there would remain a kind of reconciliation between the uh, proponents of freedom and the proponent proponents of slavery. Here, everything broke down. It, it broke into a all-out war. In the midst of that war, it was not the case that the enslaved won out. In fact, the enslaved, as they entered into freedom from the very beginning, even from 1863 onwards with the, uh, with the, the Emancipation Proclamation, um, it, the, the emancipation laws that emerged during that decade always were tinged with this effort to reconcile with the slave-owning interests. And what this basically meant is that the compensation that was paid to, again, to the slave owners as opposed to the enslaved, it was paid through policy decisions. It was paid through legal mechanisms. Uh, it was Yes, it was also paid through the confiscation of uh, the lands that had been given to the newly freed people as a form of early reparations. Those lands were then reconfiscated and were returned to the planter class. So here we have policy, government policy, as a very important domain in which after the end of slavery, the newly freed people by design were yet again dispossessed and the slave owners were yet again compensated. And then the final uh, emancipation that I look at, which um, which completes the, the, the circle, because after all, slavery is a story that begins in Africa. Um, we return to Africa and we see how as the British Empire, the French Empire and other empires now turn their sights to Africa, what we call the scramble for Africa in the 1880s onwards, that uh, set of imperial you know, projects and wars was again uh, exercised under the banner 
of emancipation. So, so the, the, the conquering of African nations, uh, really from the 1870s onwards, but picking up from in the 1880s, what I call the beginning of a truly global war on black lives, that was done in the name of freeing African people from slavery. Uh, and so, you know, from beginning to end, from the 1770s through to the 1880s, these different varieties of emancipation, again, they share that common thread, which is that the enslaved pe people never received reparations, but it doesn't mean that reparations were not paid. Reparations were paid the wrong way. They were paid to the slave owners in a variety of different ways. And what do you think that the long-term legacy of those reparations is? Yeah, great question. And, you know, I've just given this kind of very broad, sweeping kind of um, uh, overview, and, and I think it might help it for me to make things kind of specific and personal um, in, in what I share next, which is to say, in some ways, this story began for me uh, back in 2018. And that was the, the, the time that, um, as a historian, you know, just rummaging around in archives, including online archives, I noticed uh, basically it was just a line that and it came from HM um, Treasury uh, from a report back in 2015 saying that the Slave uh, Compensation Act loan uh, had finally been paid off, and this was again an official communication from the British uh, from the British government, and that that caught my attention because I. I, I could not imagine how a loan that was taken out beginning in 1835 should have just been paid off in 2015. And so, you know, looking deeper and deeper um, into that and filing a set of um, Freedom of Information Act requests with HM uh, Treasury, what I determined um, was that, yes, indeed, for 180 years, the British public taxpayers had been forced to use their own incomes to support the financing on a loan that the British government took out in 1835 in order to pay the largest slave owner compensation that has ever been paid to the slave owners across the British Empire. And so here, in somehow embedded in this story, is the answer to the question of how um, those decisions made, you know, almost 200 years ago now, have... Uh, implications in terms of policy, in terms of law, in terms of taxation, that are not just a story of the past, but have this long intergenerational legacy that affect us to this day. And then we can also, we could very easily think about how Black communities intergenerationally uh, have had to pay for the consequences of those decisions, those, those, those designs um, that uh, were implemented uh, during the emancipation processes. I wonder if you could give some examples of that, the impact on black communities specifically. You know, if today uh, we look at um, black communities, especially African Caribbean communities in Britain, as well as black communities in the United States, and um, we, we see that uh, the black communities in both of these nations uh, suffer still today from um, overexposure to the criminal legal system, to um, uh, instability around access to education, to food, to financing, to land, you know, the very basic elements of what uh, being secure in society means. All of these dimensions of what we might think of as um, social equity, we see that that Black communities uh, certainly 
are truly still underrepresented and underserved. And then the question then naturally arises, well, where does that come from? How do we explain that? And as a historian, I know that the answer is in the context and the answer is in the legacies. And so if we trace these legacies back, it's the, the point the point for me is that the legacy certainly does go back to this this deep, uh, almost call it a code of slavery in which certain groups of people were encoded as property and were not treated as persons. And, and in some ways that is the original sin, but there is this other, other dimension, which my book I think is playing an important role in uncovering, revealing, which is that it's not slavery alone. It's also the failed process through which slavery ended that actually perpetuated these very forms of social injustice. Um, if I can make that concrete in in a few ways, let's take the example of um, of, of of legal representation. Uh, when the uh, in in the British Empire, let's think about Jamaica for example. 1838 is when uh, slavery officially ended, and when the enslaved uh, walked into this new legal category of official legal category of freedom. At that time, as they entered freedom, the ex-enslaved population still was barred from political representation. They had no voice uh, in the in Jamaica's assembly, and this was the case across all the colonies. Furthermore, at that very time, just as emancipation was ending, just as the slave owners were receiving this largest compensation ever, the British state was investing heavily in the vast expansion of the prison industrial complex across uh, its plantation colonies. And so the colonies truly became prison colonies. The newly freed people were criminalized and also received no access to the vote and no access to equitable political uh, representation. And beyond that, if they wanted land, they had to squat on the land of the ex-slave owners because there was no reparations process to redistribute the land to them. Uh, and so here we have playing out almost the very problems that still bedevil us today. And the problems emerge because the harm was never redressed. You know, the harm that had been done through slavery was not redressed through the emancipations. It was actually carried forward over time. And it was encoded in the racial caste system of legal code, of the criminal legal system, and a variety of other dimensions of um, government policy. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Then we realize this is not about giving something to somebody else. This is actually a story about how do we repair our relationships with each other, um, our social relationships. You know, I talk about that in the book. How do we become more reciprocal together uh, again. I think we all want that. And that's what leads to peace. You know, that's what leads to peace. And, and so that's what, that's what this story can really be about, I think. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm interested to hear what you would see to blame for these failed emancipations, as you call them? Basically, is it accident or design? I think it's a bit of both. I do think that there is design at work, but I don't think this is ultimately about malevolence. I don't think this is about, you know, uh, when we want to call it secular evil. I think this is something much more mundane. It's about interests. You know, it's about interests. There were groups who were going to lose out by the, the the freeing of African peoples legally so that they were no longer able to be treated as somebody else's property, but they were treated as their own persons. People were going to lose out, and the specific groups who were going to lose out were certainly slave owners who actually claimed to own African people in the legal system at the time. But then there were a variety of other derivative groups who benefited from, you know, uh, an an economic system that was maybe the most important uh, economic heart of the British Empire, as well as uh, the American colonies, um, all for more than 200 years. So I'm thinking of banking interests, I'm thinking of political interests, uh, industrial interests. All of these were part of a feeding frenzy that all rooted back to the the power uh, that was granted to some people to extract labor um, through coercion from black people without any compensation. So it makes sense in a certain way that if, if this great treasure, which was founded in injustice, was going to be taken away, and that's exactly what abolition meant, that those interest groups would do everything they possibly could to find a way around it and to maintain their interests generationally afterwards. So I see it in, I see it in those terms. I see it as a question of, of competing interests. But I also think there is a dimension here of um, what was potentially, we could call it accidental or unintended, in the sense that because there was never once somehow the the sense amongst those who are making these decisions to bring the Black people who are being affected by them to the decision-making table. It allowed for things to develop that probably would not have developed otherwise. Oversights, you know, callousness, a variety of other things. That's a lesson to us today, that for there to be legal remedies for harm, and actually this is rooted in the deepest history of our law codes, 
you have to listen to the victims. They have to be part of the process. That's what restorative justice means. If we don't have those kinds of restorative approaches, if the perpetrators and the beneficiaries are deciding what justice looks like, it's probably not going to look like justice to the people who've been badly affected. And that's exactly what's happened here and what continues to happen. I wonder if we could dig into a couple of your case studies now. So we've obviously spoken in fairly big picture terms, but a couple of things in your book that were really specific, I think, brought this home to me. You speak about in the American North, um, a man in Connecticut, an enslaved man called James Mars and his story, what basically happened to him after he was emancipated. And I think it's just a really good example of what emancipation actually meant for many people in reality, that it wasn't a great um, opening up of the doors of freedom, as you say. James Mars touched me um, and many of the the, the people that um, I, I kind of met in the archive, they touched me um, through what they experienced through the emancipation process. And just very briefly, Mars um, was, he had a, his, his parents and he had a brother uh, and once emancipation happened in Connecticut, um, like I mentioned, the parents uh, remained enslaved people. The children became free, but that freedom would be given only in the distant future. It was a uh, post-dated check of freedom that would could only be cashed for Mars when he turned 18. So he was a, a child at the time. Um, this, the man who claimed to be his slave owner refused to allow Mars to um, to to live with his parents. So the parents uh, moved organized to be close to him uh, so that they could see him every couple of weeks. But Mars ended up being badly treated and abused by this uh, slave owner as a child. He ran away. Uh, he was recaptured. He was sold to another. Remember, we're talking about somebody who was supposedly legally emancipated as a child. Um, he was sold to a new slave owner. There was, again, more abuse. Eventually, went close to turning 18, probably with just some months before his emancipation would finally be ratified, he was granted freedom by that, that next slave owner and, you know, and then went on to become a very important um, early civil rights activist and, and a writer and lived to a very old age. But in, in, you know, here in the story of James Mars, we get a kind of textured sense of how uh, families were torn apart. Certainly families were torn apart by slavery and, and, and that's one of the key features of how, what slavery did. But families were also torn apart by emancipation too. Uh, and uh, there was, and the state created um, a kind of protection for slave owners that continued for decades, whereby they could, with impunity, continue to abuse uh, black children, uh, as was the case um, with Mars. But also here, you know, I just point to the end of the story, which is what did this mean for him? You know, as somebody who experienced this injustice, what it meant for him is that he became the proponent for a cause. You know, he became an abolitionist. He wrote his story down um, and he played a very important role in the Underground Railroad. That's what happened to people who experienced this. They became activists. Um, you know, they became reparationists. And I think that's hugely inspiring for us today. Another case study that you look at is Haiti. So Haiti was a former French slave colony, Saint-Domingue, and it became independent after a revolution in the late 18th century. But 
you write about how Haiti's future was really determined by the fact that it had been a slave society that had essentially emancipated itself. How was that the case? How so? Yeah, I, I love talking about this history of of, of Haiti um, because it you know it's a meditation on how freedom happens outside of the emancipation process. So it helps us understand that. Uh, the liberation from slavery is not the same as emancipation. They're two different things. And Haiti proves that, you know, from 1791 to 1804 was uh, the the period of the Haitian Revolution. Um, During that period, it went through many phases. But what ultimately happened, you know, under the leadership, for example, of Toussaint Louverture, and then um, later on, de Céline, what eventually happened is that the Haitian people said that they would not engage in an emancipation process that was given to them, that was imposed on them by the French Empire. You know, the, the, even the term emancipation actually comes from the Latin to let free from the hand, the slave owner letting free from his hand, sometimes her hand, but most most often his hand. And here the Haitian people said they were not asking to be let free. They were going to we might say, steal the freedom themselves. They were going to claim their own freedom. And that's what um, what happened through the Revolutionary War with the, the French Empire. Then, given that that is how things happened, the French did not respond by recognizing the revolutionary freedom of the Haitians, which is very significant in comparison to how the French nation was the first international uh, audience to recognize the American Revolutionary War back in the 1780s. So here we have that very strong contrast. Instead, what happened is that the the French Empire and uh, the kind of international uh, European community, including the uh, the American settler colony, um, in some ways they they colluded in order to diplomatically Uh, exclude Haiti from uh, the international order, to boycott Haiti for many decades. In fact, uh, America never officially uh, recognized Haiti until 1862. But but when we come to what this meant for emancipation, it's very interesting that in the 1820s, the French decided that the only way that they would allow Haiti to enter the international system uh, was if they got to impose that emancipation that they never were able to do during the Revolutionary War. So this is what I call the retroactive emancipation, basically imposing 20 20 years after the fact onto a people who already were free, who already had declared their freedom, imposing on them a legal system and a debt system that uh, in some ways sought to reassert the racial caste order. And this, you know, the the crux of this was the imposition of the indemnity that Haiti had to pay the French Empire uh, a large sum of money, just like um, in manumission, slaves had to pay the slave owner a sum of money in order to redeem their freedom. This system was imposed on the Haitians, and the Haitian state ended up having to suffer under that debt burden for uh, the better part of, you know, the coming century and a half. And so here you might say that this retroactive emancipation um, of the French on 
Haiti was the origin of third world debt and even the origin of the third world debt crisis, you know, and, and it's rooted in that uh, logic, uh, that deep code of emancipation, which was to perpetuate, not to disrupt, to perpetuate the, 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 the system of oppression. And until the, the French were able to do that, they would not recognize Haiti as, uh, you know, a sovereign nation um, in the family of nations. It's really interesting to hear your perspective of emancipation being an effort to, as you say, perpetuate rather than disrupt, because that really goes against the traditional narrative that's told in the West, at least, about emancipation. You know that it's a triumphant moment in um, moral progress of civilization. How do you think we do at commemorating emancipation? So what's interesting to me is that Despite this very troubling history of what emancipations really were, when we look at them as and process as their processes, um, we also see historically that Black communities have already always always celebrated emancipations. So we know, for example, Juneteenth in the American context, when the ex-enslaved people in Galveston finally received news of their freedom. Juneteenth has now become a national American holiday. When we think of uh, the the British Empire and now the British Commonwealth, you know, the August first across many Black nations that had suffered under British rule is still a very celebrated day of, you know, Emancipation Day, the day of winning freedom. So here we have this interesting paradox. How do we think of emancipation? What does emancipation mean? And I think the the deep, deeper observation that I've come to is that's precisely the point. What does it mean? And it's it, what's important is what different communities bring to the meaning of this word emancipation. That makes all the difference, you know. So as opposed to emancipation being celebrated in Black communities as an end, as something that is commemorated, that, that, that proves that we have made progress and moved on, I actually think the celebration, the dedicated celebration of emancipation by Black communities, what's called the Jubilees, that's actually a celebration of the ongoing cause of the fact that it has not ended and that the struggle continues. So it is a kind of yearly recommitting to the struggle for justice. And I think that is a very different way of thinking about our past than one, uh, you know, sometimes we hear this language, that happened long ago. It's time to move on. And in fact, when Prime Minister Cameron uh, visited Jamaica in, in just, just six months after the final payment of that 180-year-long debt that I mentioned earlier on, it, it, was it a coincidence that he used his speech to ask the Jamaican people to move on? You know, to move on from this, this, this unpleasant history of slavery? Moving on is a temptation, I think, especially for um, histories that haunt us. But, you know, my book, it's called The Black Ghost of Empire. My book is, is making the point that we can't wish away these ghosts. What we can do, what we must do, is we have to actually invite them in. And then we have to figure out what they are asking us to do for our future, you know, and I think that's the spirit of, the, of what people b- can bring to emancipation. So if we are thinking about how to address this difficult history, as you say, invite these ghosts in, what might that look like? You say in the book that the ghosts in our past demand reparatory action. How do you think that reparations could work? Um, 
could work really logistically in 2022? You know, when we hear the term reparations, it's I think it's useful to pause and reflect on what we're hearing, you know, what we're actually hearing. And I think often we're hearing two things. One is um, we're hearing... Uh, the question, well, is this even feasible? You know, how how could we even go about doing this? To that, I think we already have a lesson from history that it's, it's obviously feasible because it has been done. You know, it, reparations have been paid; they've just been paid the wrong way around. So it's been it's it is feasible. Then the next question is, but you know, what form should it take and? Who could you, how could you pay reparations to? Because this is a history from so long ago. You know, there's the kind of the, shouldn't we move on as opposed to cry over spilt milk? But if we recognize that this is not spilt milk from the past, this is a kind of source of ongoing woe for our societies, then this is not something about the past. It's very much a question for our present. And if that's what we're dealing with, it is also the case that um, one mere transactional writing of a check, for example, is not going to be sufficient. That's not what reparations can mean. And that's not what reparations has ever meant for centuries of reparationists. Uh, Not to say that the question of compensation is not part of what reparations means. Absolutely. Part of what law says is that if there is harm, there must be recompense, there must be amends. And so I think the discussion around a proper compensation to uh, Black communities today for the generational harm done through uh, slavery, emancipations, and what followed after, that's absolutely something that should continue to be discussed. But then there are other dimensions of reparations which we maybe lose track of and which I think are absolutely essential. So um, the question of how do we retell our histories together? You know, how do we re-narrate the past? And also the question of what does proper apology look like? How does one actually recognize what happened and then make amends for it? Uh, I think that is another very important dimension. And then I come to the whole arena of law and policy. Don't forget that reparations were paid to slave owners, yes, in money, but also in these mechanisms and devices of legal code and of policy decision. The story that I'm telling in Black Coast of Empire is a story about uh, 200 years that have passed since the first emancipation started and the ways in which we are still paying today in terms of the social cost for bad decisions that were made back then. So if we think of it that way, we are now at a point where we can choose by making good decisions to to do things that are going to help generations 200 years from now. You know, that's what's riding on this conversation is how do we do things differently to break a cycle, which we're still in, a cycle that's rooted in 200 years of the past so that we can create a healthier cycle for two centuries in the future. I mean, that's what I that's one way that I like to think about this question of what reparations actually means. Finally, just to pick up on your point about retelling our shared stories, our shared histories, how would you want the story of emancipation and the end of slavery to be retold? So, yes, it is the case that history has been told the wrong way. It has been told uh, as a story of triumph, often as a story of the triumph of um, white abolitionists, often as a story of the triumph of men who are 
white abolitionists. There's another way of telling the story, which is not looking to heroes, whether they be Wilberforce or, or Granville Sharp or, uh, you know, Garrison. And there, there are a variety of, of abolitionists who we sh- must certainly respect and who play a very important role in um, how difficult histories have transformed. And they did try to disrupt things along the way. But there's a story here about community, specifically the Black community, who were able to show resilience um, and strength and creativity, even as over and over again, it's almost like a, a, a pattern of abuse was replicated, even in the name of their own freedom. And in response to that replicating system, we should be telling the story about uh, how these communities sustained each other, nourished each other, inspired each other. There is a very inspiring story to tell here, but I think it's not in the places where we've been looking thus far. And if we start telling the story the right way, which is from the perspective of the Black communities, then we have to also be telling the story about what went wrong that still needs to be fixed today. And I think that gives us the path to actually maybe transform the reparations debate as it currently exists, um, to make it much more dynamic, to make it make a lot more sense, you know, to us, then we realize this is not about giving something to somebody else. This is actually a story about how do we repair our relationships with each other, um, our social relationships. You know, I talk about that in the book. How do we become more reciprocal together uh, again? I think we all want that. And that's what leads to peace, you know, that's what leads to peace. And, and so that's what, that's what this story can really be about, I think, is leading us in that direction. That was Chris Manjapra. His book, Black Ghost of Empire, The Long Death of Slavery and the Failure of Emancipation, is out now, published in the UK by Alan Lane. A version of this interview appears in the May issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on the Persians, the Dudley dynasty, and the Ukraine war. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley.